Part three, chapter six of If Winter Comes by A. S. M. Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. That's the way. But on the following evening, the way was not to be recaptured. The old way was restored. He was enormously cast down by his rejection. When he got back that night, he went straight into her. I say, they've rejected me. They won't have me. His face was working. It's that cursed heart. She slightly puckered her brows. Oh, you know, for the minute I couldn't think of what on earth you were talking about. Were you rejected? Well, I must say I'm glad. Up at the knitting league Mrs. Turner was saying her son saw you at the recruiting office after you were rejected, and that it was into the ranks you were going. You never told me that. I must say, I don't think you ought to have thought about the ranks without telling me. And I wouldn't have liked it. I wouldn't have liked it at all. I think you ought to be very thankful you rejected. I'm sure I am," he said flatly. Why are you? Thankful? Good Lord, you don't know. What do you mean? I ought to be thankful. Because you ought to be an officer, if you go at all. It's not the place for you in your position, and apart from anything else, she gave her sudden burst of laughter. He felt arise within him violent and horrible feelings about her. What are you laughing at? Well, do just imagine what you'd look like in private soldier's clothing. She laughed very heartily, again. He turned away. Up in his room he began to write a long letter to Nona, pouring out to her all his feelings about this second rejection. He was writing to her, and hearing from her, regularly and frequently now. It was his only vent in the oppression of these frightful days. She said that it was hers, too. After that letter of hers, at the outbreak of the war, in which she had said that she thanked God for him, that he had delayed her scission to unchain their chains and to join their lives. No further reference had been made by either to that near touch of desire's wand. It was, as he had said it should be, as though her letter had never been written. And in her letter she always mentioned Tony. She wrote to Tony every day, she told him. And there were few of her letters but mentioned a parcel of some kind sent to her husband. Tony never wrote. Sometimes, she said, there came a scrap from him relative to some business matter she must see to but never any response to her daily budget of gossip, the kind of news I know he likes to hear, or any news of himself and his doings. She once or twice said, without any comment, but he's writing often to Mrs. Stanley and Lady Grace Hendon, and Sophie Basilton, and I hear bits of him from them, and know he's keeping well. Of course, I pretend to them that their news is stale to me. Another time, I've just finished my budget to Tony, she wrote and I have sent him two sets of those patent rubber soles for his boots. Do you think he can get them put on? Every day I try to think of some new trifle he'd like, and you'd be shocked and think I care nothing about the war, at the number of theaters I make time to go to. You see, it makes something bright and amusing to tell him, describing the plays. I feel most frightfully that, although of course my canteen work is useful, the real best thing every woman can do in this frightful time is to do all she can for her man out there and Tony's mine. When this is all over, oh, Marco, is it ever going to be over? Things will hurt again. But while he's out there, the old things are dead, and Tony's mine and England's. My man for England. That is my thought. That is my pride. That is my prayer. And a few lines further on. And he's so splendid. Of course you can imagine how utterly splendid he is. Lady King Warner, his colonel's wife, told me yesterday her husband says he's brave beyond anything she could imagine. He said, she's given me his letter, 
The men have picked up from home this story about angels at Mons, and are beginning to believe they saw them. Tybar says he hopes the angels are near him, because he thought he was in hell, the particular bit he got into, and he thinks it must be good for angels, enlarging for their minds, to know what hell is like. As a matter of fact, Tybar himself is nearer to the superhuman than anything I saw knocking about at Mons. His daring and his coolness and his example are a byword in the battalion composed, my dear, with the solitary exception of the writer, entirely of heroes. In sticky places Tybar is the most wonderful thing that ever happened. I'd like to be near him because his immediate vicinity is unquestionably a charmed circle, and I shudder to be near him because he's always at the worst spot. Can you imagine him, Marco? And always her letters breathe the saber, his own passionate love of England, his own poignant sense of passion in her and by her, his own intolerable aching heart at his envisagement of her enormously beset. They reflected his own frightful oppression, and they osaged it. As his letters, she told him, osaged hers. As burdens are osaged by a mingling of distress. There is no good news, he told her, and for me, who can do nothing, and sometimes things are a little difficult with me here, and I suppose that makes it worse. There seems to be no way out. But your letters are more than good news, and more than rescue. They are courage. Courage is like love, Nona. It touches the spirit. And the spirit, amazing essence, is like spring. It is never touched, but it springs. She was working daily at a canteen at Victoria Station. She had been on the night shift, but I can't sleep. I simply cannot sleep nowadays. And so... Shortly before he wrote to her of his second rejection, she had changed to the day shift, and at night took out the car to run arriving men from one terminus to another. And about twice a week I get dog-tired and feel sleepy, and send the chauffeur with the car and stay at home and do sleep. It's splendid. Northrips had been handed over to the Red Cross as a military hospital. Her answer to his letter telling of his second rejection at the recruiting office, most tender words from her heart to his heart comforting his spirit as a transfusion of blood from health to sickness maintains the exhausted body her reply told him that on that day fortnight she was coming down to say of his disappointment that she could do so inadequately express in writing she was going out to war work in france in tony's name she had presented a fleet of ambulance cars to a red cross unit and she was going out to drive one and she was coming back down to look at thing at northrop's before she left on the following day tidborough opening its newspapers shook hands with itself in all its houses shops and offices of its own special and most glorious v c lord tybar tybar's v c was the first thing sabre spoke of to nona when a fortnight later she came down and he went up to her at northrop's in the afternoon its brilliant gallantry rendered so vivid to him by the intimacy in which he could see that thrice attractive figure engaged in its performance stirred him most deeply he had by heart every line of its official record in the restrained language of the gazette the left flank of the position was insecure and the post when taken over was ill prepared for defence when the battalion was suffering very heavy casualties from a seven millimeter field gun at very close range Captain Lord Tybar rushed forward under intense machine-gun fire and succeeded in capturing the gun single-handedly after killing the entire crew. Later, when repeated attacks developed, he controlled the defense at the point threatened, giving personal assistance with revolver and bombs. Single-handed, he repulsed one bombing assault. It was entirely owing to the gallant conduct of this officer that the situation was relieved. 
oh rare and splendid spirit fortune's darling thrice worthy of her dowry nona had written of it in ringing words she flushed in beautiful adore of the enthusiasm she joined with sabres at his opening words of their meeting but she ended with a sad little laugh and then she said what do you mean nona and then she took a letter from her bag i only got this this morning just as i was coming away it's in reply to the one i wrote him about his v c oh marco so splendid so utterly splendid as he is and then to be like this look he says he just got leave and he's going to spend it in paris one of his women is there that mrs winfred he's taken up with her again he says poor thing she's all alone in paris i know how sorry you will feel for her and i feel i ought to go look after her i know you will agree with me i'll tell her you sent me that will amuse and please her so she touched her eyes with her handkerchief it rather hurts marco it's not that i mind his going it's just that what he would do but it's the way he tells me he just says it like that deliberately to be cruel because he knows it will hurt so utterly splendid marco so utterly splendid marco and so utterly graceless she gave her little note of sadness again utterly splendid look this is all he says about his v c isn't this fine isn't this like him he says p s yes that v c business you know why i got it don't you it stands for very cautious you know they laughed together yes just like him tybar exactly sabre could see him writing the letter delighting in saying words that would hurt delighting in his own whimsicality that would amuse splendid airy untouched by fear untouched by thought fearless faithless heedless graceless fortune's darling invested in her robe of mockery nona's laughter ended in a little catch at her breath he touched her arm let's walk nona he thought she was looking thin and done up her face had a rather drawn look its soft roundness gone but he thought she had never looked so beautiful to him she spoke to him of what she had tried to say in her letters of his disappointments in offering himself for service never had her sweet voice sounded so exquisitely tender to him they spoke of war never but in their letters had he been able to thus give his feelings and receive them touched with the same perceptions kindled and enlarged back into his sympathies again the others with war was all discussion of chances and circumstances of this that had happened and that that might happen of this that should be done and that that ought not to have been done laboratory examination of means and remedies the epidemic everything and the patient upstairs nothing the wood not seen for the trees with nona he talked of how he felt of england dear earth i do salute thee with my hand he told her that she nodded i know i know say it all through marco he stumbled through it at the end a little abashed he smiled at her and said of course no one else would think it applies richard was saying it in wales where he just landed and it's about civil war not foreign but where it comes to me is the loving of the soil itself as if it were a living thing that knew it was being loved and loved back in return our england nona you remember gaunt's thing in the same play this royal throne of kings this sceptre isle this other eden demi-paradise this happy breed of men this little world this precious stone in the silver sea this blessed plot this earth this realm this england she nodded again he saw that her dear eyes were brimming she said yes yes our england and rupert brooke said it just so perfectly marco and think this heart all evil shed away give somewhere back the thoughts by england given her sights and sounds dreamy happy as her day 
and laughter learned of friends and gentleness in hearts at peace under english haven she touched his hand dear marco she made approach to that which lay between them this heart all evil shed away marco in this frightful time we couldn't have given back the thoughts by england given if we had and that was you marco he shook his head not trusting himself to look at her he said you not i anyone can know the right thing but the strength to do it strength flows out of you to me it always has i want more and more i shall want it things are difficult sometimes i've a frightful feeling that things are closing in on me there's shelley's ode to the west wind it makes me oh, i don't know wrought up and sometimes i've the feeling that i'm being carried along like that and towards that frightful cry at the end oh when if winter comes he stopped he said give me your handkerchief to keep nona something of your own to keep there will be strength in it for me to help me hold on to the rest to believe it if winter comes can spring be far behind she touched her handkerchief to her lips and gave it to him after october especially he spent never less than two evenings a week with old mrs perch in october young perch went to france and on his draft leave took saber from the easy promise to keep an eye on my mother military training which to most gave robustness gave to young perch saber thought a striking enhancement of the fine-drawn expression that had always been his about his eyes and forehead saber apprehended something suggestive of the mystic spiritually occupied look the paintings of the huguenots and the old crusaders had and looking at him when he came to say good-bye and while he spoke solely and only of his mother saber remembered that long ago the thought of young perch's aspect of his spirit being alighted in his body as a bird on a twig not engrossed in his body a thing death would need no more than to pluck off between finger and thumb but unthinkable that not young perch old mrs perch was very broken and very querulous she blamed saber and she blamed effie that freddie had gone to war she said that they had leagued with him to send him off freddie i could have managed she used to say but i cannot manage mr saber and as for effie you might think i was a child and she was mistress the way she treats me bright effie used to laugh and say now you know mrs perch you will insist on coming and tucking me up at night now does that look as if she's the child mr saber mrs perch in her dogged way if mr saber doesn't know that you only permit me to tuck you up one night because i permit you to tuck me up the next night the sooner he does know how i'm treated in my own establishment the better for me thus the initial cause of querlessness would bump off into something else and in an astonishing short number of moves bright effie would lead mrs perch to some happy subject and the querlessness would give place to little rays of animation and presently mrs perch would doze comfortably in her chair while saber talked to effie in whispers and when she awoke saber would be ready with some reminiscence of freddie carefully chosen and carefully carried along to keep it hedged with smiles but all the roads where freddie was to be found were sunken roads the smiling hedges very low about them the ditches overcharged with water and tears soon would come she used to doze and murmur to herself my boy's gone to fight for his country i'm very proud my boy has gone to fight for his country effie said young perch had taught her that before he went away while they were talking she used to doze and say good morning mrs so-and-so my boy's gone to fight for his country i'm very proud of my boy gone to fight for his country good morning mr so-and-so my boy's gone too but he didn't want to go but i said he must go to fight for his country 
"'But that's not true, Freddy. "'Oh, very well, dear. "'Good morning, Mrs. So-and-so.' She used to wake up with a start and say, "'Eh, Freddy? "'Oh, I thought Freddy was in the room.' Tears. She liked him to sit and talk to Effie, and to smoke all the time and knock out his pipe on the fender. She said it made her think Freddy was there. Effie said that every night she went into young Perch's room and tucked up the bed and set the alarm clock and put the candle in the matches and one cigarette in the ashtray by the bed. And every night in this performance said, He said he's certain to come in quite unexpectedly one night, and he will smoke his one cigarette before he goes to sleep. It's no good my telling him he'll set the house on fire one night. He never listens to anything I tell him. And every morning, when Effie took her in a cup of tea very early, as Freddie used to, she always said, "'Has Freddie come home in the night, Effie dear? Now just go knock on his door very quietly and just peep your head in.' Sabre had always thought bright Effie would be wonderful with old Mrs. Perch. He wrote long letters to young Perch, telling him how much more than wonderful bright Effie was. Effie mothered Mrs. Perch, and managed her and humored her in a way that not even young Perch himself could have bettered. That astounding fun of humor of hers, reflected in those sparkling eyes, even Mrs. Perch's most querulously violent attacks were transformed into matter for whimsical appreciation, delightfully and most lovingly dealt with. When the full, irritable, inconsequent flood of one of Mrs. Perch's moods would be landed upon her in Sabre's presence, she would turn a dancing eye towards him, and immediately she would step into the torrent and would begin, Now look here, Mrs. Perch, you know perfectly well. And in two minutes the old lady would be mollified and happy. Marvelous Effie, Sabre used to think. And of course it was because her outstanding fund of humor was based upon her all-embracing capacity for love. That was why it was so astounding in its depth and breadth and compass. Sabre liked immensely the half-whispered talks with her while Mrs. Perch dozed in her chair. Effie was always happy. Nothing of that wanting something to look at was ever to be seen in Effie's shining eyes. She had the secret of life. Watching her face while they talked, he became to believe that the secret, the thing missing in half the faces one saw, was love. But the old difficulty. Many had love, himself and Nona, and yet were troubled. One evening he asked her a most extraordinary question, shot out of him without intending it, discharged out of his questing thoughts as by a hidden spring suddenly touched by groping fingers. "'Effie, do you love God?' Her surprise seemed to him to be more at a thing that he had asked than its amazing unspectedness and its amazing irrelevancy. "'Why, of course I do, Mr. Sabre. Why, do you?' She was utterly at a loss. "'Well, of course I do.' And he said rather sharply, Yes, but why? Have you ever asked yourself why? Respecting, fearing, trusting, that's understandable. But love, love, you know what love is, don't you? What's love got to do with God? She said in simple wonderment, as one asked what had the sun to do with light, or whether water was wet. Why, God is love. He stared at her. The second Christmas of the war came. The evening was the last day of the old year was to have given Sabre a rare pleasure to which he had been immensely looking forward. He was to have spent it with Mr. Fargus. The old chess and, and acrostic evenings hardly ever happened now. Mr. Fargus, most manifestly unfitted for the exposures of such a life, had become a special constable. He did night duty in the garden home. He chose night duty, he told Sabre, because he had no work to do by day and could therefore then take his rest. 
Younger men who were in offices and shops didn't like the advantage. It was only fair he should help in the hours help was most wanted. Sabre said it would kill him in time, but Mrs. Fargus and the three Miss Farguses, still at home, replied, when Sabre mentioned his option to them, that Papa was much stronger than anyone imagined. Also that they agreed with Papa that one ought to do in the war, not what one wanted to do, but what was most required to be done. Finally that, being at home by day, Papa could help, and liked helping, in the many duties about the house, now interfered with the enlistment of the entire battalion of female Farguses in the work for war. One detachment of female Farguses had leapt into blue or khaki uniforms and disappeared into the voracious belly of the war machine. The remainder of the battalion thrust their long legs into breeches and boots, and worked at home as land-girls. Little old Mr. Fargus in his gray suit, and the startled child Kate, with one hand still up her back in search of the errant apron-string, did what the battalion used to do, and were nightly, on the return of the giant land-girls, shown how shockingly they had done it. Rare, therefore, the old chest and acrostic evenings, and most keenly anticipated, accordingly this, the first for a fortnight, on the eve of New Year's Eve, it was to have been a real long evening, but it proved not very long. It was to have been one in which the war could be shut out, and forgotten in the delights of mental twistings and slowly puffed pipes. It proved to be one in which this frightful war was groaned out of Sabre's spirit, in emotion, most terrible to him. At ten o'clock, profound gymnastics of the mind in search of a hidden word beginning with E and ending with L were interrupted by the entry of the startled Kate. One hand writhed beneath her shoulders for the apron string, the other held a note. "'Please, Mr. Sabre, I think it's for you, Mr. Sabre. "'A young boy took it to your house and said you was to have it most particular. "'And please, your Rebecca sent him on here, please. "'For me, who on earth?' he opened it. "'He did not recognize the writing on the envelope. "'He had not the remotest idea it was a jolly evening. "'Could enamel be that word in E and L?' "'He unfolded it. "'Ah, Freddy's killed. Please do come at once. I think he's dying, E.B.' He was alone in the room where Mrs. Perch lay. Not even Effie. One o'clock. This war. He had thought to shut it away for the night, and here was the inconceivable occupation to which it had brought him. Alone in here. The doctor had been and was coming again in the morning. There was nothing to be done. He had said, just watch her. Watch her? How long had he been standing at the foot of the huge bed, the biggest bed he had ever seen? And what was there to watch? She gave no sign. She scarcely seemed to breathe. He would not have recognized her face. It had the appearance of a mask. Sinking, the doctor had said. In process here before his eyes, but could not be seen by them, awful and mysterious things. Death, with practiced fingers about his awful and mysterious surgery of separating the spirit from the flesh, the soul from the body, the incorruptible from the corruptible. This could not be. There was not a sign. There was not a sound. And what should he be doing to be here alone? Blind watcher of such a finality? It was not real. It was an hallucination. He was not really here. The morning and days and weeks and years would come, and he would know that this really never had happened. But young Perch was dead. Young Perch was killed. It was real. He was here. This war. End of chapter 6 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah voiceover-solutions.com